We are the unfairer sex, four women, four glasses of wine and a whole world of problems to navigate. Yes, there's going to be some rage, but there's also going to be a hell of a lot of laughing, learning, catharsis and camaraderie along the way. So grab a glass of wine and join us. Very excited to welcome today Christina Lunds, who is the co-executive director and co-founder of the Centre of Feminist Foreign Policy and a writer, but also the winner of the Strive Magazine Community Role Model Award of 2022. How are you, Christina? Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm really good. I'm very happy. I'm happy to be here and um, to be chatting to all of you. And I'm good. Um, the reason that I... Well, the reason that I hounded the others to um, to make sure we got the CFFP on the podcast was because actually for me, it was the first time I'd ever heard of feminist foreign policy. And I felt it was super important that more people knew about the work that you were doing, the importance of it. So we'd love to start with um, what is the feminist foreign policy and certainly what's the centre of feminist foreign policy? What's its ambitions, its successes and also some of the limitations that you face? <laughs> so how many hours do we have? But okay, let me, <laughs> let me try to be quick. But I mean, the question about what is feminist foreign policy itself, it's such a big one, but of course it can be um, pre um like concise as well. Um, but, but it's such a big one. I actually wrote a whole book, 400 pages about feminist foreign policy because it has, mainly because it has this like long tradition um, and, but also it has to be applied in all areas of foreign and security policy that is kind of ranging from climate justice, decolonizing foreign policy, demilitarization, defending human rights, feminist international assistance policy, and so forth. But, okay, so step back first. What is feminist foreign policy? Um, feminist foreign policy really is um, a approach um, to rethink the very paradigms of foreign policy making. Um, so whenever feminist thinking makes it to any sphere of life, um, what it's about ultimately is um, rethinking power structures. So traditional foreign policy making has this big focus on what is called the so-called so-called realist paradigm. It's this understanding by scholars, but also by foreign policymakers, um, that the world is in a like all countries and states are in a state of anarchy because we do not have a supranational government. And when we do not have a supranational government, uh, government, um, all states in this apparently anarchic um, state try to be relatively more powerful than other states. And how do, do they achieve it? They achieve it by uh, through mili military militarized strength and, um, and power, through um, oppression and imperialism, colonization, like that's, that was typical foreign policy making of the past. But still, traditional understanding of foreign policy puts kind of its priority on, um, on militarized security. And feminists, when they I mean, more than a hundred years ago, in 1915, during the First World War, um, there was a very first conference. Um, it was called the Women uh, Women Peace Conference in The Hague, where 1,200 women came together and they said, listen, guys, like this is, excuse my French, but that is fucked up. Um, we have a world war happening at the moment. Um, people are being killed, like the, the military, military spending has, had been increasing for years and, um, and all what we're doing as people in this world is like kill each other and destroy each other and like, and then whilst colonization is happening, that is incredibly destructive. So these women came together in 1915 and said, we need a new world order. Um, we need a focus on, on human security. What does, what keeps human, like what keeps people safe? It's, 
for most people, it's not the military. Um, we need a focus on mediation for conflict resolution. We need to teach peace education to children. We need to dismantle the um, industrial military complex. So these ideas, they're more than 100 years old. And then over time, and especially in the 1980s, um, more and more feminist academics also started focusing on rethinking the theoretical underpinnings of international relations. Um, and they said, like all this writing and kind of and a scholarship and what is still until today being taught at most universities in international politics and international relations, that that is frankly, that's toxic. And that does not keep the majority of people safe. Um, I mean, the to give you one figure, um, during 2000, uh, in, in last year, 2021, um, it was the second year of the pandemic. The whole world pretty much did not have enough money for hospital beds um, and and for, for for doctors and nurses. Um, but during that year, when when there was no equal distribution of vaccines, somehow the world had enough money to um, to um, to spend. Um, the highest ever recorded amount of money for military last year. Um, for the first time, the two trillion US dollar military global spending um, was reached. So these are priorities in the world and in international politics that, that do not make sense if we actually care about the safety and security of of people. And and you know, feminist foreign policy. Um, strongly relies on research that shows that the most significant factor towards whether a country is peaceful within its own borders or towards other countries is the level of gender equality. Um, and that, that makes lots of sense because countries um, or authorities or governments that are oppressive towards women, and that is always linked to the oppression of other marginalized groups, um, within its borders, um, um, like through different forms of discrimination, oppression, state violence, or kind of the um, impunity of violence against women and so forth, those states are just as likely to be violent um, towards other countries and to start wars and to um, to violate to violate human rights treaties and so forth. So um, based on this research, um, the the slogan of my organization of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy is that there cannot be a peace without feminism. And yeah, that becomes obvious. Unless we dismantle patriarchal structures on the global level, there will never be a peace for anyone. That's such an interesting thing. Because one, one of the things that I've um, kind of been faced with, and I'm sure a lot of people have had the same question when talking about feminism, is what what about everything else? What about um, racism? And what about homophobia? And what about all the other things but actually you're saying that it's it goes hand in hand you have a patriarchal system where women are oppressed and therefore the chances mm -hmm. of of all of these other things all these other groups um being oppressed too is much much higher so actually by dealing with equality you're, you the knock-on effect is you're dealing with or we're dealing with gender equality you're dealing with other other groups as well Absolutely. And um, and for our work, on top of that, like on these like obvious links, I mean, 
uh, let me go a step back for a second again and to explain patriarchy maybe for a second. So patriarchy, like patriarchal society, that means like we all, we've been living in patriarchal societies for the past four to 6,000 years. That means that unjustified a group of, a small group of people that is globally speaking, white men from the global north, but then within different countries it's like it's always some male elite a certain class um heterosexual and so forth um they um um they've they've had the privilege um for thousands of years to uh, really accumulate power and resources um um and pass them on to other men like that is patriarchy passing power and resources and access on from one man to the next generation of men um, and to keep kind of this unjustified and, and unfair and unjust um, hierarchy in place in society, um, you need like a, um, a good, like a well thought through or like well established um, system of hierarchies, hierarchies towards other groups. So, so in our societies, we have hierarchies between the genders. We have hierarchies um, between people from different backgrounds, religions, um, hierarchies depending on whom people love, um, and those on kind of the, yeah, I don't know, on the receiving end, on the, the lower end, what do they receive? Violence, because you need violence to keep hierarchies in place. That is why we have like incredible numbers and of male violence against women. Um, and in patriarchy, I would also define by um, by saying that patriarchy means the um, ubiquity, normalization, and impunity of male violence against women in our society. Um, but but this violence, like you keep women in check and in the private sphere um, by using violence, but in the same way you keep um, like the LGBTQI the, or queer community um, or or like racialized violence works uh, the same the same way. So there's like this inherent for us, for our work at the center, we are a team of 17 people here in Berlin. Um, that is kind of the inherent understanding, kind of those things. But on top of that, we're also working on, um, on, 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 on different projects, which again have like a focus on, for example, the uh, international anti-feminist attacks on the LGBTQI system, or we're working on decolonizing foreign policy. Um, yeah. So I think it's really interesting that you were talking about the different um, the different concerns that a gender might have, for instance. So the fact that we've had, as you said, thousands of years of a patriarchal rule where actually men are interested in maintaining the rights and the power that they've managed to gain um, because of these systems. There was a stat from the WPS Global Study that said women's participation increases the probability of a peace agreement lasting at least two years by 20 percent. And by 35%, the probability of a peace pact lasts in 15 years. And so even when you start to understand this, and again, and then you look at leaders like Sanna Marin, you know, the Prime Minister yeah. of Finland, um, yeah. he's massively pro kind of bringing women on board. And she said that, you know, you, you need a collection, you need all genders on board when it comes to making systemic changes, because she noticed that there's a difference in priorities between women leaders and male leaders. And one of those was that women politicians endorse and want policies concerning issues of education, childcare, family life, social and healthcare. And men tend to promote and emphasize different issues such as economy, um, economics and military issues. So it's really interesting that you've obviously mentioned that obviously there's been an increased spending in the military, um, but also we're seeing a direct impact on 
societies such as you know Afghanistan at the moment by removing women from education so if there isn't that kind of support for or there isn't women at the table asking for equality then you're gonna start seeing discrimination and also almost I don't know what I'm trying to say now but yeah, it's, well, no, I think <laughs> what uh, I was just about to say, I think almost the same thing, Ali, which is Christina has has uh, so eloquently explained what the problem is. And mm. it sounds so beautiful and simple what the solution is, which is to have more diversity to, to introduce feminism, to get equality. But really, when you've got a system that's led by the patriarchy and has been for so long, why would those people want to change a system that works so well for them and has worked for such a long amount of time. And the places that desperately need the change the most are the ones who would probably be the most resistant to it. You've given some great examples just then, Ellie. So uh, how do you reach those people in the highest echelons of government to explain this is the issue? And whilst it doesn't look like it, this is a neat solution that you need to take seriously. Yeah, such a good question. Um, Let me... Uh, first, I want to comment on something um, that was just said before I res- try to respond to your excellent question. Um, <laughs> so, for example, the statistics about the um, the peace deals and how much more likely um, a sustainable peace is once you include women um, in negotiations. That is true. That is important. Um, and it's kind of um, and, and here I would like to put it in like a wider context again. Um, the exclusion um, or let me put it that way. Another way of how to define patriarchy is really patriarchy is the, um, the, the, the aggressive attempt to keep women um, out of everything that is political and public. So patriarchy is um, kind of the restriction of women to the so-called private sphere. Um, that is the kitchen, the household, care work and so forth. And every and, and feminism means um, breaking out of the restriction to the private and, and every attempt for, for women to get into the public until today, they have been met with resistance um, because that is what patriarchy is about, like keeping women in the private so they do not have any influence in the political, in the public sphere. Um, and as an example of such sanctions um, that um, women have to face when they kind of um, try to fight against this restriction to the private is, for example, online violence. Um, I don't know any um woman including myself who speaks up publicly um challenging the status quo who does not receive online violence and that is one forms of those sanctions because we dare to go into the public space um, and question the very paradigms of society so the sanction is violence um okay then um and and, and about the peace negotiations so um um that is true and and a reason being is um the more i mean ultimately any policies, any policy making will forever only be as good as people behind them are diverse. Because only through that we guarantee the inclusion of um, the very many lived experiences that are out there. So it is not like peace is not more sustainable and and, and more issues will be brought to the table because women are born more peaceful or anything. No, because their lived experience and women's lived experience is one of like male violence for example and they finally make it to decision making for her um hence why um every group in society has should have the right to equally according to their kind of proportion in society participate in in in, in power decisions and policy making 
Um, and 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 so yeah, so that is kind of the the ideas, and they, as you said, uh, they seem very. I mean, that makes all sense, and yet yeah, not rocket science. Once you take the time to think it all through, right? Um, but then you have the problem of um, status quo of like foreign policy making, and 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 I mean, here we're talking about one of the most exclusive spheres of society, right? So diplomacy, diplomacy has always been a very elitist and exclusive part of society. Historically, diplomacy was the kind of the act of between aristocratic men from different countries or regions to decide on the future of their regions or countries. So hugely exclusive elitist. Um, and, and of course, these structures, diplomacy has changed somehow, but, um, but, but, but still it's, 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 it's an exclusive part of society. Um, and, and then trying to change power structures within that and really talking about the big problems such as reallocating how money is being spent, reprioritization from militarized security to human security, um, human rights for all, like, um, spending, giving money for women's rights, LGBTQI rights, focusing on, on, on fighting the absolute destruction of um of of the environment and so forth like that is that is the toughest topics and these are the most pressing issues so your question towards how can you actually have an impact there how do we work as an organization um um i would sometimes nina my co-founder and i um here we sit here also with the team and we're like well could we have chosen a more difficult um, topic or area to work in? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but it, it is so relevant. And so what we're trying to do, we as an organization, we're young, we're four years old, co-founded co the organization four years ago here in Berlin. Um, um, and we're, we're producing knowledge, research on the different topics, all of them that I have just mentioned. Um, I wrote a book on it. We're doing also lots of advocacy work, also through our advocacy work, um, the German government last year, pretty much a year ago, announced the feminist foreign policy in their coalition agreement. We are briefing different governments that have or are developing a feminist foreign policy. Currently 10 countries have one, a handful more currently developing one. Um, we are, <clears throat> we are in the spaces, um, some of the spaces where foreign policy decisions are being made. We are, Despite being young and and somehow small, 17 people, um, we do have some reputation, recognition, social capital that we are using, and we're trying to really be a bridge between things so network and, and access we have to uh, also decision makers somehow here in Berlin, trying to bridge that with um, grassroots organizations on the ground, for example, in our Afghanistan project. Um, yeah, that is what we do. We're very unapologetically and very loudly demand change and reprioritization through networks, advocacy, research. It's really interesting because, um, I mean, I've got COP27 in my head and the fact there's only seven female leaders who are representing um, the, you know, the climate agenda on that global mm -hmm. stage. And I kind of think, like, are we doing it wrong? You know, it is sending all our world leaders to COP27 the actual right way to go, or is it that we actually need to create, like they did in World War II, where they actually just create a group of people, a conference, which has a complete diverse mix of people and get them to solve that problem. It kind of feels that just sending all the world leaders who we know primarily, like primarily men isn't the way forward. And it kind of feels that we're repeating our mistakes 
do you find yeah. that when you're doing the the work where you're trying to get governments to to take on the research that you've done and listen to the policies and kind of be influenced by that that you're what what limitations do you find when you work um, with the people that you work yeah. with no i think you just nailed it um i i think we can sum it up in this one observation which is most of the so-called solutions of today that we present or that are presented are the problems of tomorrow. Um, but because they're human beings are really not the best in long-term thinking, um, too much of decision-making in international politics focuses on the short-term. Um, and when you focus on the short-term, that is, I mean, that's been the reason why we are in a climate emergency because there's always been the focus on the short term um, and we can't afford it and like people cannot adapt to so much change so quickly like it's always been the short term um, or also when it comes to militarization so there's there's a war and Putin's war on aggression against Ukraine and yes it is absolutely right that people who are affected by brutal violence need to be supported in the way and in their self-defense supported the way they ask for it so yes it makes sense to send weapons in the short term, but not completely forgetting about long term. That means where do these weapons end up after the war? Like in whose hands will they be? Um, what does like an inflow of so much militarization mean to a country and especially the women and, and other marginalized groups living there? Um, what does an ever increasing over the past couple of years, global military spending today, because we think we have now problems. What does this mean for the future um, when we have will have created a yet a yet more militarized world and more? I mean, we could not have more research that says that uh, an increased proliferation of weapons will lead uh, will lead to more violence and conflicts. So all this short-term thinking is creating, and the so-called solutions will are creating the problems of tomorrow. So yes. The same problems are being repeated again and again and again. And yeah, you mentioned the seven women leaders at the COP or something. It's, oh, it is just, it's so frustrating, right? So my colleague of ours, our project manager, Sheena, she's also at the COP at the moment. And this is like this big today as we speak on, on, on Monday, the second week of the COP 27 is the, uh, the, the, the day that focuses on gender and, 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 and so forth. And um, there's a civil society we're not expecting that much, unfortunately, because there's, I mean, we all saw the pictures, like pretty much only male leaders at the COP. Um, and it doesn't mean that men cannot be feminists. There's so many male feminists out there, but it still means um, that the lived experiences of so many people are not represented in important um, negotiations. And one of them is gendered experiences of, of of every day like looking at climate crisis for example there's like what what do the numbers say the numbers say that 70 percent of all climate refugees are women and girl uh, women and children um numbers say that um if we for example look at the um, the tsunami um in southeast asia from 20 2004 um the vast majority between 70 and 80 percent of the victims were women why is that because in i mean all States around the world being patriarchal, um, and in in those affected during the tsunami, too often women 
again, were those who were kept in the house, who were supposed to stay in the house, who were not taught how to swim, because why teach a woman how to swim? It's completely waste of resources, because that woman's only supposed to stay in the house. Um, and like the climate crisis, the climate catastrophe has so many gendered effects. Um, but they're not they're not sufficiently um, represented at those spaces where decisions are being made. So I I I completely understand and agree with everything you're saying with regards to the lack of representation. There's a little bit of me that thinks, well, rather than do something different with regards to like having a different group of people, at least this highlights it. You can go look. There are only seven women. Um, let's let's do something about that. Um, but on a on a slightly different note, I so I've worked in government for quite a long time and um, have I, I find it frustrating that uh, policy makers, the people actually writing the policies are majority women um but obviously the people signing it off are majority men so that makes it quite difficult and you're trying to influence those men but one of the things that came into place in the uk government not long ago was having a family impact survey um and or a family impact assessment and every time there was any new policy you had to put it through this kind of impact assessment that said, how is it going to affect families in the UK? And I just wonder whether it's a it's a similar sort of thing. It's hard, it's hard enough to get people to think about uh, the impact that a policy has on the people it directly impacts, let alone the people sort of a, a, around them, like women or children or families or whoever, who, whatever other group. And so I, I wonder whether it's something that if if we could say for convince convince the civil service or ministers or whoever else here are a bunch of impact surveys you have to do one of them is how does this have an impact on women and because you need to start getting people thinking about it as standards it shouldn't be a tacked on thing it shouldn't be something that people go oh have we thought about women have we thought about race have we thought about whatever else it needs to be something that you think about from the start um and uh it's the kind of thing that yeah if you could put in front of the right bunch of people and get them to agree yes we are every single policy we're going to put through this impact assessment and uh maybe in time it's not going to be overnight it'd have an impact but i certainly know that having that family impact survey made a big difference with regards to what i was working on and actually if you were looking at it directly the policies i was making didn't have a direct impact on families but if you started to skirt around the edges, you go, oh, I see. I see what impact this has. Um, that was more of a statement than a than a question. But uh, yeah, I think it's a really important thing and something that governments could think about. Yeah, I just wanted to build on something uh, Rihanna mentioned, which is going to be a question that I asked, which is how how do you measure success? How do you know which which strategy is working? How do you create a strategy in something as as big as this? Yeah, on the point about kind of the surveys and so forth, um, 100% true. Um, we need those, um, um, measures that, uh, those, um, tools that measure the different impact on different groups of society. Um, and, and they've existed for many years. So the, in Canada, for example, um, Canada introduced their feminist international relations Fem no, Canada introduced a feminist international assistance um, policy in 2017, and since then, they on on a state level and, and governments uh, and NGOs have had them um, early, uh, years before as well. But on a state level, Canada has really been leading the way with the gender-based analysis plus. That is exactly that tool. Um, all policies need 
um, need to be checked against what different impact they have on different genders. So there's like a very comprehensive tool that could be used by, I think, other governments uh, as well. So it's all out there. Um, could, and goes, should. Yeah, like it really should exactly. be rolled out. <laughs> so true. And same goes with gender budgeting. There are like uh, some countries that are already doing a really good job at like gender budgeting, i.e. meaning looking when you have a budget, like for example, a state uh, level budget or like a, a approved by a parliament, um, try to understand um, how the spending of this budget, who really benefits from it in the end. So if like lots of money or in emergency funds, for example, like emergency funds for um, the pandemics, if if through those funds lots of money is being directed to save the the car industry, um, mainly men, um, men mainly men will benefit because they work disproportionately in that sector. Um, so these things need to be thought through and um, through tools by using tools, and they exist. So that's good news. Bad news is the reluctancy by too many actors, be it governments um, um, and so forth, um, to not use them. Um, and then the question with regards to impact assessment, that of course needs to come with any new policy. Like, did what we expect um, for for men and women and 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 the LGBT and whoever we're trying to benefit from a policy, will they actually be? Will they actually have benefited in the end? And the um, so the question with regards to accountability and impact measurement, um, it's I mean, it's difficult, but that should never shy away anyone um, from doing it. Um, and when we, as the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy, together with others, advocate for more countries to adopt feminist foreign policies, that is always one of the key demands. Because otherwise, if there's no accountability, it, 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 it makes it um, difficult. Yeah. So I don't think we can do a podcast about feminist foreign policy without mentioning Sweden. So Sweden were the first country to adopt what is explicitly called a feminist foreign policy. And in the motion of doing that, they reinvented the notion of Sweden as a moral superpower on the global stage. However, come October of 2022, Sweden's new right wing government announced it was ditching the country's pioneering policy, saying the label could be counterproductive to the primacy of Swedish values and interests. Other reasons were stated that it has the tendency to cover up the content. And there's also ruffled feathers in others, notably in the Middle East. What a terrible, terrible uh, value to have equality, like a terrible value in society. Like that seems what it's saying. It's like, oh, it doesn't reflect our values. Like what a load of nonsense. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was that's what's been the kind of uh, the reaction to this. It's like, well, you're this was such a progressive policy in itself. And yet everything that you still stand for is covered within this policy. So it doesn't make any sense to retract or, or go back. But I find it very interesting that within that it comes, we've heard of it, like we've heard it before, but this idea of uh, the label can be seen as counterproductive. Yeah. And part of me feels we're back to that bloody feminist, the femme, yeah. and it feeling like it's just for women and us going, you need to look beyond this. And it's just really heartbreaking that that seems to be such a stumbling block for people to buy into a policy that encourages greater inclusion. Or people think it's feminism or nothing else. Yes, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You do you do women or not yeah. and and that's it. You don't get to do all the other things. And that's that's what I was saying earlier about what about is and it's like, well, if if you're focusing on 
uh, feminism on female feminist foreign policy mm. well then you're not thinking about the environment and you're not thinking about race and you're not thinking and it's it's that's rubbish it's clearly rubbish but I think that's what people that that's what a right-wing government obviously we're back to a patriarchal group of people uh are, are going to be thinking it's like oh well you're not doing anything if you're focusing on women but also Margot Wallstorm so she's the one who came up with this concept in 2014 that the guiding principles that she came up with, there were four R's. One was rights, they mean in the promotion of women's issues, including, including, including by countering gender-based violence and discrimination. The second was representation, so including support for women's participation at all levels of decision-making, from parliament to private sector boards to the legal system. And the third one was resources to ensure equitable allocation among people of all genders, whether in government budgets or development projects. And then Margot actually introduced a fourth are, which was reality. So knowing that the policy isn't going to change things instantly, but examining where she and other diplomats could find common ground. I find it interesting, Lucina, that you've once described um, feminist foreign policy as a utopia. So mm. where has Sweden gone wrong? And how do we get closer to the utopia that feminine forest policy promises us? Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you're mentioning Margot. She's become a, a, a close ally of ours as well. Um, she's in our advisory council. Um, um, she's like a couple of times spoken in our events. She also wrote the foreword in my book. Um, she's like a great person, great feminist, great politician. Um, so that was really bold for Margaret in 2014 when she, I mean, already in 2014, there has been this almost 100 year old tradition of feminist foreign policy thinking and, um, couple of successes were already out there in the world, which include a important Security Council resolution um, on women, peace and security and so forth. Um, but she really brought it to the state level. Um, she was the very first foreign minister to ever introduce a feminist foreign policy in the first country to do so in, in, in Sweden. Um, and there was bold back then, like she was ridiculed a lot. Sweden was ridiculed a lot. People were like, Oh, that is so silly. Why? What are we going to do now? Like, there's like, um, increasing aggression from, from Russia <clears throat> towards the Baltic countries and so forth. And we're talking about feminist foreign policy. Well, because people either like, there are often two options. Either they just like generally don't get it and do not make the effort to want to understand it or to listen. Um, or, um, they have all the interest, um, based on, on kind of the wish to like keep power. Um, all the interest to ridicule everything feminist, right? Um, so, um, and, 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 um, in Sweden for the past years, there's really been for many other countries that after adopted a feminist foreign policy, many of them have looked, um, to Sweden. Mm. Um, um, and many of them have copied those three or four hours. Um, and many of them have used the Swedish handbook on feminist foreign policy. And, and now, yeah, end of October, new government, um, right wing. And it's unfortunately one of the key characteristics of, um, right wing thinking, um, and especially within right extremist, um, right wing ex ex extremism, um, such an is like a core tenant of any form of extremism, but also right-wing extremism, um, but but also within right-wing tendencies, um, um, one of the the first things to do is um, to do anything that it takes against women's rights, LGBTI rights, um, and the feminist movement. So this is what we're seeing in Sweden, and it's incredibly unfortunate. Um, 
and we are closely observing. We, I think tomorrow, and I'll be speaking with a key civil society actor in Sweden with a group of them to better try to understand what's happening there now, how we can support the international or, or the, the Swedish-based NGOs uh, in, in their feminist advocacy. Um, is, yeah, it's just not something that I and the Reason organization are just willing to accept, I guess. So what's interesting about the fact that Sweden's obviously done a U-turn and one of the reasons that they suggested they've done that is because the term itself, feminism, um, can be sometimes polarising and actually affecting the international relationships they have with other countries. Interestingly, a 2020 survey around Canada's feminist international assistance policy found that more than 50% of respondents believed that feminist development, gender equality and or women's empowerment programming did not benefit women but rather undermined men and boys. Which is ironic when you consider that most policies around the world currently undermine women and girls, but that doesn't seem to matter. So, yes, I would actually be interested to understand why the 50% of respondents believe that feminist development, gender equality and women's empowerment doesn't benefit women. Um, it could be the implementation of the policies, policies themselves, but I can't believe that sits within the ambitions of the policies because they seem very clear that they would benefit women. And yet even saying that now... There has been criticism that Sweden's model uh, is actually unclear whether internationality was actually ever implemented. And looking beyond that, whether feminist one policy does explicitly account for intersectionality, because without which it makes it ineffective for issues with multiple dimensions or, you know, it fails to capture the complexities that come with race, ethnicity, religion, age and all of the above. So I think when we're looking at feminist foreign policy, um, the thing for me that seems to come out the most is this idea that how do we make it bigger than the dreams of a nation because if we're implementing this at domestic level but we are then expected to trade and build relationships with our neighbors who might have either a different feminist foreign policy or a different understanding of a feminist policy or just have no desire to ever implement something like a feminist foreign policy how do we how do we work alongside those and perhaps more importantly, how do we hold ourselves to account? You know, when we look at feminist policy, you know, ignoring feminist foreign policy for now, how do we create mandates that are inward looking, that hold ourselves to account and make sure that we align domestic policies in the same way that we would apply foreign policies? Mexico is a prime example of being held to account by activists for failing to apply feminist principles to domestic issues, including femicide. And that is what I think we need to start seeing more of because it's very easy to point the finger at other countries and other leaders who are doing terrible, terrible things and not applying a feminist lens to the work and the policies and the laws that they have in place until every country does an introspection and holds themselves to account to make sure that they are doing more. Then we're never going to move past this hurdle. And the last thing I want to say on this point is going, going back to Margot Wallstrom. You know, she she is formidable. And I think one of the reasons that she is so formidable is because she doesn't just look at the, the bigger picture and obviously presented this big idea, which has now been implemented by countries around the world. But she also looks at the smaller actions that we can take. And during an interview with Past Blue, she said at every foreign policy meeting, no matter where we were, we started asking, where are the women? Now, the reason I love this is because it's so simple, yet brilliant. And the reason it's brilliant is because it's effective, because no one likes to be called out for the things that they know they should be doing. It goes back to asking someone to explain a sexist joke back to you. It encourages them to do the introspection because you're literally asking them, where's the representation? Why have you chosen to leave 50% of the population out of this conversation?
I know we're not going to get it right every time. In fact, I've got a note here talking about the clash between Sweden and Saudi Arabia and how Stockholm tore up an arms trade agreement between the two countries, which then caused ripple effects into that relationship. So I guess my question is, if we can't get the whole world on board with a feminist foreign policy or a common understanding of what a feminist foreign policy is, how do you reach this utopia? So one of the um, principles of how we are doing our work, and it, it's actually a, a slogan or, or a sentence that I learned from a British um, a feminist activist a couple of years ago when I still lived in the UK um, and started my feminist work back then. And she said to me, as we were fighting to change the rape law in Germany in 2016 to make it consent-based, um, and, and we were back then advocating for no means no, when others said it has to be yes means yes. Mm -hmm. um, but back then we realized there's no there's no room for yes means yes. Um, let's try to at least after 20 years reform the current um, law on sexual violence in Germany. So this activist, this British activist said to me, um, um, don't let the perfect be the uh, um, enemy of the good. Um, and this is kind of how we're trying to do our work um, with regards to feminist foreign policy, because, I mean, <laughs> a totally feminist world or even a feminist foreign policy, that is complete utopia. Like, we are, we could not be further away. I mean, yes, we could be further away, but we are very far away from that. And it's, it's I think it's beautiful to define it as a utopia, because utopias are kind of these, what is it, North Stars um, in societies where we're trying to get to and we're we're having this like big goal we're using kind of all our mental capacity to come up with like creative and and impactful ways to get to this north star this is what the utopia is um, and it allows for creativity and it allows for impactful actions i mean you mentioned the example when margot wallström ended this arms arms deal with saudi arabia because of the women's rights situation and the and the the flogging of a journalist um, and many many people were not amused and it like started this like diplomatic problems between uh, Sweden and Saudi Arabia um, a couple of years ago um, but if I think real social change is not possible um, without kind of these um, um, I wouldn't know how to describe it in German but this, uh, social change is not possible without some of these tensions because only if people feel offended or like there's a sense of of a feeling of like i'm feeling disturbed or is something um, is happening here i'm not comfortable with and only then will real change happen so i think these like feathers they need to fall quite a bit to get to an utopia i wish i wish that the outrage that uh, was perceived by states like Sweden that made them retract their legislation was felt by those other states who are particularly oppressive. I wish the outrage of the rest of the world was sufficient uh, to make them change their ways. It's just it's so frustrating that it only seems to be one way. I completely agree with you, Anne-Marie. Um, I think we need to start, I think there needs to be a consequence, right? The whole time we're not ruffling feathers, there is no incentive for people to change. And to look at a really timely event, the Qatar World Cup is it's not just that people aren't challenging it, but people are actually investing in it. They're giving Qatar a global stage. And this is a country that continues to curtail freedom of expression by using abusive laws to stifle critical voices. Women face discrimination under the guardianship system. And same-sex activity is still illegal. 
And then the bloody cherry on top is that our own foreign secretaries turned around and said that the LGBT football fans have to show a little bit of flexing compromise and be respectful of the host nation. So it's not just that people understand that Qatar have this bad human rights track record, but they're also now encouraging those who it discriminates against to be the ones who compromise rather than look into things like a feminist foreign policy so that we can leverage better international relationships with our neighbours. And who knows, we might actually start to see less investment in military and more investment in peace agreements that might live on beyond a one-year term. Yeah, these structures are so strong and so old. And, you know, one of the the, the Qatar example that you're just mentioning, um, one of the reasons why Qatar has a fair amount of support from Western countries like um like the United States, but also they're like high level politicians in Germany um being in favor of this um World Cup, for example. And the reason being is all amongst others, it's not the sole reason, it's always complex. But the um the key military US key military base um for that region and going um eastwards is in Qatar. <laughs> so um yeah, um, it, if we want to understand international power structures and decision making, we we need to understand these like old militarized structures, um, especially. That makes so much sense with regards to looking at history to better understand power structures and decision making. And I feel I could just listen to you all day. You just seem to have this fountain of knowledge around or uh, about the world. I'm sure obviously you've picked up a lot of that during your work uh, with the Centre of Feminist Foreign Policy. So with that in mind, why don't we end on a slightly lighter hearted question? And would you mind sharing a couple of your favourite moments or the moments that you felt most sense of achievement around with regards to your own personal journey as a feminist, but also your work with the CFFP? Um, I mean, if we speak like in general for me, I mean, the fact that um Nina and I have been building this organization. So in general my most favorite project, it's not a project, it's like a, a charitable company, but um it is CFFP. Like the the mere fact that we started building it four years ago. It's a feminist grassroots organization. There was no money by anyone behind it. Um, um co founded by um uh, working class um women um in a patriarchal world, in a world that have significantly less um, resources to female founders compared to male founders. A society that um, underfunds civil society and especially does not bear or barely funds feminist work because feminist work criticizes the very patriarchal structures. So given this environment that we've managed to build an organization um, that um, despite its young and beautiful age um, is so fairly strong, um, that is I think one of the best projects of things I've done in, in, in life. Um, and apart from that, a few of the um, campaigns that I mentioned before um, are really close to my heart. So when together with other civil society in 2016, we managed um, to change the German rape law. Um, a few years earlier, I did a campaign um, strongly inspired by the UK's No More Page 3 campaign. Um, a campaign against um, Europe's biggest newspaper and the sexualization of women in that newspaper. Um, or like these examples I just mentioned, they've, they're, they have been quite impactful and they fill me with the biggest joy and fulfillment. Um, so yeah, and within CFSP then, um, it's, uh, it's done, uh, like to give an overview and to, to listeners like to understand how we work. For example, at the moment, 
um, we have um, 10 ongoing projects um, funded by funders in areas ranging from nuclear disarmament to defending human rights, feminist international systems. And um, over the years, there have been quite some projects. I, I think one of the, uh, when last year on the 15th of August, um, Kabul fell to the Taliban, um, we within two, one, one and a half days, we set up a campaign called Defend Afghan Women's um, defend Afghan women's rights. And um, we collected within very few days more than 160K for grassroots organizations in Afghanistan on the ground. Since then, we've been working with seven of the leading women who, Afghan women human rights defenders to bring their demands to key policymakers. Um, that has been a, a project. I'm just forever grateful that um, we have been involved and we could open doors and give access and support somehow. Um, yeah, but also last year, just before the German elections, um, the, the parliamentary elections, we published our um, manifesto for German feminist foreign policy, and that's been widely read and in those places where it should be read. Um, yeah, these are two examples, maybe. That's awesome. And we should absolutely, if we get the opportunity, link to your uh, your policies and things that you've uh, your reports that you have uh, written and published that would be really great so that more people can read them not that we've got uh, probably as many people that uh, we'll be sending it out to but at least we can help a little bit yes amazing I mean, these are such incredible achievements like I rolled out of bed today and had you know a bit of coffee maybe some porridge and that's that's been it whereas you're out saving the world like you're literally pushing these forward and it's just blows my mind but I also feel like um and I know Anne-Marie feels like this sometimes and always hopes for the positives but like do you ever feel it's just too much and we're not going to make the progress that we want to make do you have ever had days like that and if you do what mm -hmm. what keeps the momentum going for you what what keeps you focused on a better tomorrow yeah i do have these days sometimes i'm just sitting and especially if a couple of things come together in one day like a wild mix between funding was just taken away from us and like on a global stage new conflicts or something broke out or like protests like yes I've had these days and and recently a few more but um thankfully I I think so Mina um who are my co-founder and co-managing director um we we're very lucky that we're co-founders and we're not like solo founders um so it barely happens that we have a low day um on the same day so we can always like pick each other up but it's not only with her i have like a good group of people of women um who are also kind of involved intellectually feminist um so to have such group um and just to reach out to and say friends today is really tough like i don't i don't see i don't i don't know how we're gonna make this anyhow better then there's always someone who's like listen this is gonna happen we're gonna do this and anyway we have achieved this already and we're gonna build on this um you need your trusted circle of, of of friends of women who are also into kind of feminist work. Um, well, for me, it, it's useful um, to like pick each other up on those days. Yeah. Looking to the future, looking ahead to something positive, Christina, if you could wave your feminist magic wand, what would be the next step for you to accomplish or for us to accomplish in either the CFFP or feminism generally? Yeah. Oof. Um, one thing, um, well, at the COP that is happening as we're speaking, um, we're hoping that loss and damage, so, um, support for those countries that are already 
heavily affected, um, that there will be a focus on that and, and, and those who've been suffering under kind of the the will or the eagerness to destroy our planet by very resourceful states and that those countries are compensated and supported. Um, so this is like in the very short term. Um, then, um, you know, we, we're currently we're looking more and more into um, understanding kind of the links of the defense industry to like policymakers and their accesses and networks. And um, because ulti ultimately, I believe, like in the medium and long term, if we want to have like really sustainable impact when it comes to peace, wars, conflict, we need to. Uh, Again, sorry for saying that word, but I don't know any better to unfuck the military industrial complex. Um, and we can only do it if we really understand how they work, how they get the money, how the decisions are being made. Um, so this is, if we manage to do that and like really reallocate the, the vast resources that are being spent on militarization every year and direct them to uh, fighting poverty, defending rights, um, um, fighting the climate catastrophe, like the world would be so much better and so much further ahead in their goals. I love the idea of you going to speak to really senior government officials and saying we need to unfuck stuff. I think that's... <laughs> that's uh... <laughs> yeah, regularly do that. <laughs> it's quite simple. It's easy as that. <laughs> Christina, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. I've learned so much about feminist policy, how it works, all the great jobs, uh, all the great work that you are doing um, with the Centre of Feminist Foreign Policy. Thank you so Thank much, you Christina. Thank you so much. Oh, Thank you. To the, the, to the episode. Yes, we'll, Thank you. we'll share. Bye. Amazing. Bye-bye. I don't know about you guys, but I've learned a huge amount today. Is there anything that like you didn't know about feminist foreign policy that we managed to cover in today's episode? Oh, well, I wanted to talk about all of it. I thought it was fair. I thought that was it's going to be a great episode. Mm. And I think the thing is, is actually what, what you don't know about feminist foreign policy is probably that it exists. Mm, like yeah. Ellie, you and I went to uh, the went to a feminist foreign policy uh, webinar um, and I think that was possibly the first time I realised it was a thing. Did um, so I imagine lots of people that are listening will also not uh, not know that it's a thing. Mm. And if you are one of these people, what I highly recommend is what I've been doing. So the webinar actually um, Rhiannon's talking about there wasn't actually the CFFP. It just so happened that um, the Centre for it the Centre of Feminist Foreign Policy happened to be a guest on that webinar. And what I did afterwards is actually did a bit more research and found that actually the CFFP have a whole library of webinars that they've recorded, which cover loads of topics. I'd highly recommend, we're going to drop a link below um, if you want to check some of these out, but they're about an hour, an hour and a half long, but generally they have about six panellists on there. So you're hearing from some really awesome people, some very formidable leaders around the world. And what's awesome is uh, soon we're going to have one of those other uh, leaders on the podcast. Uh, maybe we'll leave it as a little surprise as to who that is. <laughs> but we're very, very excited about uh, having some more people from those panels join us. So what's our homework, do you reckon? I mean, I quite like, I mean, it's a bit flippant, but I've got two. I quite like grab a glass of wine and un just unfuck it. Um, <laughs> grab a glass of wine and wave your feminist magic wand. 
quite like that, but yeah. they don't seem serious. Grab enough. a glass of wine and read the Feminist Manifesto from the CFFP. Get a bit yes. of that's a bit more that's well that's a bit more serious than better. And maybe <laughs> grab a glass of wine. Less fun. Yeah, grab a glass of wine and uh, I don't know, donate some money to some of these things. As as uh, Christina was saying earlier, she's they've just had their funding removed. Uh, there's going to be numerous uh, sort of organisations that are fairly similar. So maybe there's some that we can uh, point towards. I don't know if uh, if the CFFP takes donations or whatever, but maybe we can look into that. Yeah, and help mm-hmm. spread the message, you know, like get, get, get talking about this sort of stuff. And again, like, yeah. The whole point of this, the whole point of feminist foreign policy and feminism in itself is that we're looking to we're looking to lobby for measures that promote education, that get more women into the workforce and into positions of influence and to combat violence against girls and women. And again, this is why I think Sweden pissed me off so much, because today, when you consider the backdrop of protests for women's rights in Iran and Afghanistan, you're looking at the rollbacks of reproductive rights within Poland and the United States. And we're looking, like, it just feels that the advancement and protection of women's rights should be on every government's priority or every government's agenda. So the fact that we've got people out there like the Centre of Feminist Foreign Policy doing the groundwork, presenting ideas and giving them frameworks that they can really, they can take on board and they can implement. it's that's incredible work and it was yeah I'm, I'm very lucky I feel very lucky to have spoken to Christina today learn more about what they've been up to yeah me too we are the unfair set we are not sponsored so if you liked our podcast please like share and subscribe we are on Instagram at the unfair sex podcast we are on Twitter at the no at um, the unfair sex and you can contact us on gmail the unfair sex at gmail.com, I think. <laughs>